scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 15 through 24. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hekala, which is south of Jishaman? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today through this passage to understand who you are first and foremost, Father, about your glory, about your greatness, about your character. And Father, through that, may we know who we are as your people. Use me, Father. Speak truth through me. Should anything be of my own, Father, that you would make it fall on deaf ears, but all of your truth, Father, may it cut us to the heart as we strive to know you and understand you as your people. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, we are continuing through the book of 1 Samuel. And so we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to read actually all the way through to the end of chapter 24. And we're going to take it section by section, but... Let's, uh, let's start reading in verse chapter 23, verse 24. We're going to hit the second half of it and go all the way, well, all the way to verse 29, so five verses. And then we're going to work our way through the rest of the chapter. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jishaman. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men, as, and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So Saul's forces are on one side of the mountain, while David's forces are on the other side. He's about to fulfill his ultimate desire of capturing and killing David in order to secure the future of his throne. Now, we all, we all get this. Like, when you're on the cusp of getting something that you really wanted and you're about to get it and then it slips through your fingers. 
You just imagine what's going through Saul's head. He's on the cusp of capturing David. If he can just get around the mountain first and surround David's forces, but then suddenly a messenger arrives with urgent news of an attack by the Philistines. And so Saul is forced to break off his pursuit of David so close, and yet he just slips right through his hands in order to deal with the more pressing issue of national defense. This Philistine attack was no coincidence. Because there are no coincidences coincidences when it comes to an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign God. Which means, if we're going to put it into our life, there are no coincidences in our life either. The things of this world don't just suddenly occur by chance. This Philistine attack was by God's hand. It was by his, what we call his providence. His providence means that the things and the events in this world, including the things in our own life, the things that are happening in Russia and Ukraine, the things that are happening in Timbuktu, the things that are happening in Washington, D.C., or St. Paul, things that are happening in your family's homes throughout the country, your own home on a daily basis, God's providence means that all of those things, all of those events that are happening are directed by God to an ultimate goal. An ultimate goal. In the case here, his providence, in Scripture, his ultimate goal is the redemption of his people. The Lord protected David that day, not because David was so cunning, not because David was a slowpoke and he felt like David needed help. It wasn't because David was awesome. It was because David was the true anointed king through who the Messiah would one day come. God moved events of history and moves events of history to ultimately come to the redemption of his people and his Messiah. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but if you're going to say, well, what does that mean for my, my life today? God works providentially in history today because he's the same God today as he was in the time of David. He's still providential. He still is moving things of history, but instead of waiting for the Messiah to come because the Messiah has already come, he's, well, he's planning everything to work to the second coming of Christ. We're all waiting for Christ to come again. Amen? Yeah, it's like, think, think Katie, um, Katie, this is on out of my list, so again, show grace. Katie, once she said, would you, would you rather like, lose 50 pounds or have Jesus come? And I'm like, well, if Jesus comes, I lose 50 pounds. So it's a win-win, right? Like we're all anticipating as God's people for the Messiah to come. So when we see the things of history, we don't stress, we don't get worked up or we shouldn't get worked up because we know the one who is working all things ultimately towards the second coming. Now, it may not be obvious to us because I can't imagine that David is sitting here going, oh yeah, the Messiah is going to come through me in about three or four generations or 30 generations or whatever it is. 
That's exactly what that. David had no clue. All he knew was that he was the anointed king and that David had promised or God had promised him the throne. And so he was trusting that God would work all things towards God's ultimate goal. And so it's the same for us today. We just look for the second coming. Now, in this, in this, okay, now remember what, I, what we just said, right? That David is the anointed king, but we have a problem. This is, this is a problem for us that we have two anointed kings in this, in this passage. Because we like, we like to look at, and rightfully we look at Saul, and we're going to get there, but we look at Saul and we're like, God is not with him, so he must not be the anointed king. That is not true. He is the anointed king at that time. He's still on the throne of Israel. He is still the king of Israel. David is not the king of Israel yet. So you've got two anointed kings. What do we do with this? Well, amazingly, Saul is the anointed king because God put him there. David is the anointed king too, future-wise, because God has anointed him. But amazingly, God's providential protection of his anointed king does not mean just David. It means Saul too, at least for now, at least for now. And that's where the rest of this story goes. Chapter 22, we're going to read the entire chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 24, 1 through 22. Then Samuel, when Samuel returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats, wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do anything to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Did you hear that? David, the Lord's anointed, is calling Saul the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. There it is twice. So David pursued his men with these, uh, persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in this cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you want my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. 
but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul has no idea that he has chosen the same cave where David is hiding. He's vulnerable. He's completely unaware of his surroundings. And even David's men are convinced that the Lord has given Saul into David's hands. All he has to do, swing his sword. Saul has no idea, and the throne is his, and it will no longer be on the run. But when David approaches Saul, he stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe instead of killing him. And even this small act cuts David to his heart. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Saul is spared death by God, ironically, through Saul's successor, David. Yes, the Lord gave Saul into David's hand, it says so in verse 10, but it was God's providential protection through David that spared Saul's life. It was not yet time for David to ascend the throne. But these incidences do more than just reveal God's providence. That's true. They also reveal the identity, identity of who the true anointed king is. Who Who is the one who truly has the presence and the hand of God in their life? So just as an apple tree produces apples and an orange tree produces oranges, so the wicked produce wickedness. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. This is a a proverb that uh, David says to Saul, David's act of sparing Saul's life because Saul is the Lord's anointed reveals that he is not the wicked man that Saul believes that he is or that Saul is even making him out to be to the people around him. If David was so wicked, then why spare Saul's life? But these also, these words cut to the reality of who Saul is, directly to Saul's heart. His desire to kill David for no other reason than the fact that God has chosen David and not Saul as king 
reveals Saul's wickedness. One who says that he loves vegetables but refuses to eat vegetables does not like vegetables. They're not wicked, they're smart, but that's a whole other issue. So where David's righteousness is revealed by his unwillingness to put out his hand against the Lord, a Lord's anointed, Saul's wickedness is revealed by his actively seeking to kill the Lord's anointed. Do we see, do we see that? An apple tree produces apples, and the wicked heart produces wicked acts. There are many in Israel in the time of Christ, who reject him. But even the faithful struggled, actually, to know if he was really the Messiah. So you have the enemies of Christ, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and many others who are speaking against Christ. They don't believe that he is the Messiah. They are completely rejecting him and his teaching. But even the faithful begin to wonder as Christ continues to progress in his ministry and to walk through life in his ministry, are you really the Messiah? In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, John John the Baptist, you know the one who prepared the way of the Lord in the wilderness? The one who said, "I I am not worthy to tie even the sandals of this man? the one who is called by Christ himself the greatest prophet who ever lived, that John the Baptist, sends his disciples to Jesus and asks this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, are you really the Messiah? And this is what Christ says. This is an interesting response. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, apple trees grow apples. How can you know that I'm the Messiah? I'm doing and saying the things that only the Messiah will say and do. Do you know anybody else who can raise the dead, John? You know anybody else who can cleanse lepers, who can make the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb to speak? Do you know anybody else? who Only the Messiah can do that, John. You see my actions, and it reveals that I am the Messiah. Whereas the Pharisees and the Sadducees see the works of Christ and they refuse to believe even the works of Christ because of their hard hearts. Those who are his disciples have their eyes open to the truth of who Christ is. They see him, they hear him, and they believe. Who else could do what he's doing? That's said a number of times in the the gospel. But let's make this more personal. Everybody, I was talking to pastors or to preachers, and they're like, application, application, application. Okay, so here's the application. I know you guys just love my applications because they're really easy to follow, right? 
Let's make this more personal because that's really what application is, right? It's let's look to the heart. Now, the tendency is to now look beyond to the people around you to say, well, I know that person right there. Okay, don't do that. Don't do that. Let's look at our own hearts. We have to We have to consider our own minds, our own hearts, our own actions, our own lives. And we have to hear this warning of Christ, take it to heart, and learn from it. This is what Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now there's a double meaning in this this, uh, uh, statement by Christ. He's He's talking about fruit, but he's not really talking about fruit, at least not literal fruit. He's talking about the fruit of the person, the fruit of the teacher, the fruit of the one who claims to be a disciple of Christ. You will know them by their fruit. And if their fruit does not match what is actually spoken from their mouths, they are not Christ's disciples, and they're only worthy of being cut down and thrown into the fire. That's not a fire like a literal bonfire. That's the fires of hell. This is, God, this is Christ saying, if you do not belong to me, if, if you do not belong to me, you belong to the fires of hell. Only through Christ can salvation be found. So you look at the fruit of the life. Are they diseased tree? Or are they a healthy tree? Are they a diseased tree or do they have good fruit? Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So how can we recognize a false prophet or a teacher? By their fruit. And if they claim to be a teacher of God, then they must be claiming to be a child of God. Now teachers are held to a higher standard, yes, but they're, they claim to be believers the standard, in a way, is still the same, is it not? If one is a child of God, they will bear fruit consistent with being a child of God. And so what is that good fruit? Well, the simplest answer, because there's a lot of, I think there's a, this is, the simplest answer is the fruit of the Spirit. But that's, that's in a way, a limited, a limited list. But let's just use this. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that faithfulness is not like I am faithful to my relationships. That is, I am faithful to God, to His Word, to His teaching, to His desires. Because those who are not children of God will not produce the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, they will produce controversies. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Or they will produce divisions. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Or destruction of faith. We're seeing that in our society right now. 
at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. And self-destruction by heresy, unbelief, false teaching. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Just as Christ is recognized by His fruit, so it is for those who follow and love Him as their Savior, treasure, and Lord. It's easy, again, to look at the lives of the people around us and say, hmm, Mark needs to be a little bit better in producing that fruit, right? What we have to do is we have to turn inward in this sense to look at our lives as His people, to be critical of ourselves, to evaluate who we are and how we are living by asking ourselves this question. Do those around me recognize me as a disciple of Christ? Do they see the fruits of the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit in my life? Now, here's my disclaimer. Because very easily you could take this and you can make it moralism. Like be a good person. Just be a good person and you'll be fine. Or legalism. Like I have to be a good person or God's not going to love me. Neither of those are true. Those are both heresies. Those are both false teachings. That is not what Christ taught. What Christ taught was is that when you are saved by me, he's saying himself, when you are saved, when we are saved by Christ, the Spirit, God himself, comes and dwells in us. We are the temple of God, and he begins to sweep out the temple. He begins to clean it one room at a time, one corner at a time. And he does that until the day we die and we are in his presence forever or his second coming, which would be absolutely awesome. It is a lifelong process, what's called sanctification. When we have faith in Christ, when we believe and we confess, when we repent of our sins and we trust wholly into, in Jesus Christ in order to save us from our sins, to reconcile our relationship with God, when that happens, we are saved. We are children of God. But then every single day, he's making us more into the children of God. Because, again, if we look at our own hearts, right, we can get really discouraged because I'll tell you, the fruit of the Spirit in my life is, seems like it's missing sometimes, right? Like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm producing really bad fruit. But as a Christian, maybe we should look at it this way. We are not perfect. We are still sinful because we still sin. In reality, like in life, but in our relationship with God, we have nothing but good fruit that we're showing to Him. It's just really tiny fruit. It might even be a little bit bitter. The people around us will see that fruit. I've said this before. So we take, let's just take love, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Are we, as God's people, more loving today than we were 10 years ago or a year ago or last week? Are we showing more patience overall? Are we growing in our faithfulness to God and to His Word? Are we having more self-control more today than we have in the past? Do we, do we see a progression of our faithfulness and our 
love and our joy and our peace and our kindness. Yeah, we, we fail. And I'll tell you, there is always a corner of that temple in us that needs to be swept out, and God's going to get to it. He will. He will, even if it means sending us to heaven. It's going to all be cleaned out. But He changes us. He makes us more fruitful. And that fruit will be obvious to people around us. There's something different about that person. Or even more specifically, they will know that we are Christ's disciples because we tell them we are Christ's disciples. Christ is my God. He is my Lord. He's the one who commands me and I do it. I have to follow Him before I follow the desires of my heart or the things of this world. He is my Savior. He is the only one that I can trust in to save me from my sin and to guide me into righteousness for His name's sake. He is my treasure. He is the most important thing to me. So even if you take my very life, I will still hold on to Christ because there's nothing more precious to me than Him. People will see it. People will recognize it. People will know that we are his disciples. Isn't it it Saul? Saul saw it. Saul says, you could have killed me, David, but you didn't. You're calling me the Lord's anointed. You are more righteous than I am. Yeah, duh. Took him a while. Amazingly, just a few chapters later, he's trying to kill David again. He just isn't learning. But he saw who David really was. In fact, even Jonathan, his son, there's that weird section at the beginning of, of, of what we read today about Jonathan coming to David, and then they make a covenant together, and then David, uh, Jonathan leaves, and David leaves, and that's the last time they see each other. And you go, that's like really weird. Why is that there? Well, I, I think it's there because even the prince of, of Israel recognizes the reality of who David is. They rec- he recognizes his righteousness. He recognizes his father's wickedness because it even says he understands that Saul was out to kill David. Saul's life revealed his wickedness. Out of wickedness comes, out of wicked comes wickedness. But in David's life, It was recognized that he was righteous. Not because David was awesome. Not because we are awesome, but because David is the Lord's anointed by God. God made him righteous. And so by Christ, we are made righteous. And everyone around us should recognize something's weird about that person. Something's weird about you. What, what's going on? We like to talk about discipleship and growing in our faith in Christ. That I just need to be, I need to really work hard to be more loving. And I need to be, work really hard to 
be more kind and more patient. And in a sense, that's true, right? We have a responsibility as God's people to work at that and be disciplined in those things. But to also understand that if you're like me, you try, you try, you try, you try it, then you fail and no more. Okay, I'm done. I, I just can't do it. It's the work of God in us who's working through us, disciplining us, training us, encouraging us so that our lives reflect who God is. When people look at me, do they hear and see wickedness or do they hear and see righteousness? Do they see rotten fruit that's only good to be thrown in the trash and thrown in the fire or do they see good fruit? They may not like it, but do they see that it's good fruit? We have to look at our own lives. Again, this is why it's easy to look at other people, right? Like, yep. All right. Aaron, I, Aaron, let's sit down and we're going to have a conversation about it. I'm going to see how your fruit's not doing. I, I can really lay that out for you really well, right? And he can do the same thing for me. But let's be honest with our own hearts. And if you see no fruit of the Spirit in us, You're not in danger of being an unbeliever. You are not an unbeliever. Can I say that? Like, let's be, let's be truthful. Let's be honest. If we see no fruit, I'm not talking about teeny tiny fruit. I'm talking about no fruit. You are not a child of God. And you are destined for the fire of hell. Hear these words. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in Him, and He will save you, and He will change you, and the fruit, His fruit, will grow and blossom and bloom. And through you, through you, people will see and know who Christ is. Father, I pray we learn from David's example so easily, God, He could have just cut off Saul's head. He could have taken the throne by his own power, but instead, Father, he trusted in you. He put his life in your hands. He exuded patience and righteousness and self-control and love for Saul, who wanted him dead, Father. Let's, we live by this example. We see Jesus Christ. Many wanted to kill him. In fact, they did kill him. And yet, Father, his life proclaimed nothing but righteousness. He was perfect in every way. Father, may you make his fruit grow in us. God, may your spirit grow us. May the fruit of who you are, Father, bloom and blossom. Not for our sake, but for your name's sake, so that we might Proclaim who you are to the, an unbelieving world who wants nothing to do with you, Father, so that some may believe. Father, may we stand confident and with joy knowing that no matter what happens, we are yours. May our lives reflect you to this world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song?